We are talking this evening on a study of the Epistle to the Ephesians. We have had one or two evenings preparation. I have been mainly concerned with the trend of teaching which we find in the Acts of the Apostles. At our last meeting we were considering the twofold ministry of the Apostle Paul. And it is in the twofold ministry that we have to exercise the principle of right division. Now before us this evening is the question, consideration of the seven epistles written after Paul became a prisoner in Acts 28. You may say to me, whenever are we going to get to the epistle to the Ephesians itself? Well friends, sometimes the shortest cut is the longest way round. You'll discover that the more you can place a book of the Bible in its true dispensational setting, the easier it is to understand its teaching. Well now, supposing we think for a moment, we introduce this subject by saying the seven epistles written after Acts 28. Well that rather suggests that there are other epistles well, unless we know the difference between one set of epistles and the other, we can't appreciate the teaching which belongs to this special group. Not only is this true with regard to, say, looking at epistles, but for a moment, let us think about truth in general. All quest for truth resolves itself at last into the search for and the establishing of relationship. As far as I've been able to get, I've tried to boil it down to that issue, and I believe that it contains a tremendous amount. Let me illustrate. Supposing I stand here, and I say the one word, Bible. Well, what can you do about it? It's no good having a protest meeting. It's no good subscribing to anything. You don't know, do you? I've simply said the word Bible. Until I make a statement, it moves nobody one way or another. Doesn't mean anything. Because if I make a statement, I may be denying the Bible. I may say the Bible is untrue. Now I related the Bible with untruth. Or I may say the Bible is given by inspiration of God. I've related it to inspiration. But you see, you never get a truth unless you've got a relationship. Well now, we shall never quite appreciate the seven epistles written after Acts 28 if we don't appreciate the epistles written before and if we don't appreciate their distinctions of the epistles written by others and if we don't appreciate the distinction between writing in epistles and writing in histories and prophecies. So ultimately, although we can never act upon it, the context of any verse in the Bible is the rest of the whole word of God. But of course that would be a counsel of protection to say we must do that at every time. But here we are trying to see truth in its right relationship. So we have a Bible as we read in Hebrews chapter 1 God at sundry times and in diverse manners think of the variety of ways in which truth is introduced to us. It might be biography. We have the last story of a man like Abraham. 
Abraham is practically justification by faith, walking about with hands and feet and living. Or we might have it in prophecy, forecasting the yet unknown future. We might have it in parable. We might have it in type and shadow like a tabernacle. Or when we come to the New Testament, we may have it in historic records like the four Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. Or anything beyond the Epistles, we might have it in the apocalyptic form, the book of the Revelation, with its marvellous visions. <laughs> so you see, if God has adopted these various ways, it may do us good to pause for a moment to consider which way is it that he's going to teach us this truth. Well, we now already know that we depend on the epistles written for our learning for the ultimate revelation of our calling. They all base themselves upon the four Gospels. For it's the same Christ who walked this earth who is now seated at the right hand of God. But the epistles were written to give us the doctrinal teaching without which we shouldn't know our peculiar calling. So that now we've limited ourselves. Although we started with Genesis and ended up in Revelation, we can put most of that aside temporarily and look at the epistles. Now there's another thought that I think it's well for us to remember. That the epistle is a grand sounding name. And it's misleading. Usually, an epistle means that somebody has written something in the form of a letter, but he knows full well it's going to be printed and other people are going to read it. That's an epistle. But these were never written by the apostles as an epistle. They were written straight out from their heart's desire to correct something in a church or put somebody right or teach a bit more. And only afterwards did they realise that what they were writing was not merely their own personal desire to speak the truth, but the Spirit of God had laid hold upon them and it was ultimately to be incorporated in the inspired Word of God. Let us think of them then as letters. Letters written by this one or the other to a little group, possibly, of those who were dear to them that they wanted to instruct, to encourage and to teach. Well, now, with regard to the epistles themselves, how many epistles are there in the New Testament? Well, there are 21. And seven of them were written by the apostles or their co-workers that are associated with the circumcision. Or, put it another way, they were written to Hebrew Christians. Christians who believe Christ, but who were of Hebrew origin. Now these are written by Peter, by John, by James, and by Jude, seven of them. Two by Peter, three by John, and the others. And they form a complete, perfect pattern. I would like to be able to demonstrate to you, but we can't do everything in one set of meetings. You might like to puzzle them out for yourself. So for the moment, if we are concerned about the dispensation of the mystery and the calling of the Gentile during this present time, we shall say to ourselves, well, if those seven epistles were written to the circumcision, as you can read, say, the opening verse of the epistle of James, James, to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, greeting, we know full well that that cannot be an epistle to which we should get, we should turn 
to get the revelation of the present dispensation. Otherwise, we are blinding our eyes to the address of the envelope. So now we say, let's set seven of these epistles aside. That leaves us with fourteen. Well now, seven of these epistles were written by the Apostle Paul while he was a free man travelling from place to place during the period covered by Acts 13 up to about Acts 20 or somewhere there. I'm assuming, without proof this evening, that the epistle to the Hebrews is one of the epistles of Paul. If it isn't, well then we've got uh, the whole thing thrown out of balance. We should have it all sixes and sevens, instead of all sevens and sevens. Although that wouldn't necessarily prove uh, the, to, to the complete satisfaction of anyone. Now what about these seven that were written while Paul was free? There are three epistles that are single epistles. And there are two sets of epistles which are double. Let's put it this way. Galatians, Hebrews, Romans. They are single. And then we have one and two Thessalonians and one and two Corinthians. There's a perfect little pattern again, you see. And those three single epistles are linked together by the quotation of one verse from the Old Testament. Galatians, Hebrews and Romans build their doctrine largely round the words from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. In Galatians, the emphasis upon faith. In Hebrews, the emphasis upon shall live. And in Romans, the emphasis is upon the just. And then the two pairs of epistles. We have one Thessalonians written round the words, the work of faith, the labour of love, the patience of hope. And we have one Corinthians with its glorious 13th chapter, now by faith, hope, love. Two Corinthians, or two Thessalonians rather, is a corrective of one, one Thessalonians. And two Corinthians is a corrective of one Corinthians. A little misunderstanding of, of what he had said, he puts right in the second epistle. And in the second epistle to the Thessalonians, he warns about false miracles and the rise of the man of sin. And in two Corinthians, he warns about, he warns about the subtlety of the serpent and his ministers as angels of light and righteousness. So that we can move those seven on one side. Because the people of Israel dominate those epistles. The epistle to the Romans is the last of the series. And the fullest of the series. And when you read the epistle to the Romans, you're reading basic doctrine upon which we build. But there are some features which belong to the time when they were written and now cease to be true at this moment. Take, for instance, the first chapter of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believe it. That's true today. But the very next words are, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Well, that's not necessarily true today. The Jew is not first in this present dispensation. Because of the time being, Blindness has come down upon that nation. 
and only an individual here and there out of Israel seeks salvation on the same terms as a poor, uncovenanted Gentile. All again, in the epistles of the mystery, which we're approaching, we read that the church there is composed of members of one body, and every one of those members are on perfect equality. When we get to chapter 3, we shall have to examine the passage which speaks about fellow heirs and fellow members, joint or on a, on a very peculiar basis of equality. But if the church of Ephesians is to be represented by a body with every member that's equal, then Romans 11 cannot possibly be speaking of that church. So there we have graft into the olive tree a wild olive contrary to nature. And that wild olive might also be broken out again and the original members graft in. Well, that's all to do with Israel. To provoke Israel to jealousy, that grafting took place. But Israel were not provoked to jealousy. They went out into their blindness, and that aspect of it has ceased. So, while we treasure, and must continue to treasure, such epistles as the epistles of the Romans, with its glorious doctrine of justification by faith, and its redemption through the finished work of Christ, upon that basis, is now to be arrested after Paul became a prisoner, a new constitution, a new calling, with its own sphere and its own special hope, and that of course will occupy our attention in the weeks that are to come. The first thing I think we must do, having reached these seven epistles, is to just understand Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, Colossians, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. First of all, we must not call them, the seven of them, the prison epistles. Because two of them were written when Paul was free. The only way in which we can make this fit together is to realize that when Paul was first of all a prisoner, as recorded in the last chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Well, it must have been very irksome to be under surveillance and always have a Roman guard at his door or in his room. Yet the Acts of the Apostles tells us that he was living in his own hired house and he received all that came under him and for two years he had that privilege and during that two years he wrote the epistle to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, and to Philemon. Now, it, I don't think there's any need for me to stop for a moment to turn to the scriptures, but I will rehearse in your, in your ears uh, that passages that you will immediately call to mind. There's no need to debate whether Ephesians is a prison epistle, for he says there in chapter 3, I, therefore, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And I think we want to observe this. Paul had been in prison before. He had two years at Caesarea. And then writing in an earlier epistle, he said he'd been in prison often. But he never was called 
the prisoner of Jesus Christ as a title. He was called the Apostle of the Gentiles, and he was. But when the time drew near for Israel to be set aside, and the new revelation of God's purpose to be made known, which is the distinctive character of the calling of the dispensation of the mystery, he uses for the first time this added title, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. He said he exercised an embassy in bonds or in a chain. We pass to Philippians and we discover he speaks about the saints of Caesar's household. So he's very much associated with Caesar. He says that he's suffering bonds for the furtherance of the gospel. So again we have a prisoner directly connected with his ministry. And then we have Colossians, which stresses the fact that to him as a prisoner had been revealed this dispensation of the mystery and that he was in bonds. The very last verse of Colossians says, remember my chain. And then we come over to the second epistle to Timothy. And in this epistle, he's no longer living in his own hired house, receiving all that come unto him. He said, I now suffer as a benefactor. And he knew that there's going to be no release. He said, I've reached the end of my course. I've finished. And uh, the thought is that he had been heard, he, he had stood his trial, and he had been dismissed. And he seized the opportunity to go around to among some of the churches, seeking to confirm them in the faith, and he wrote two epistles, particularly to those younger men who had been serving with him, namely Timothy and Titus. And then, you remember what happened at the end of the Acts of the Apostles, as far as we're able to piece together the history. After the Apostle Paul had been liberated, that terrible fire took place at Rome. And in order to find a scapegoat, they pitched upon the Christians. And they immediately became persecuted unto death. And so this real leader of the Christians was no longer permitted freedom to wander about as he, as he would. He was apprehended. He was taken. That time, executed. So now then, we've got these epistles before us. Now let's try to sort them out, shall we? The epistle to the Ephesians contains a number of key words. And every one of them are found in the epistle to the Colossians, and not one of them is found in Philippians. Well, that of itself should say to us, well, that evidently puts Ephesians and Colossians as a pair. Should we test it? <laughs> now, you see, I've selected one out of a number of wonderful statements in Ephesians to give it a sort of summing up. I might have put down, accepted in the beloved. I might have put down, or oh, any amount of wonderful things that are said in Ephesians, but I've just selected this wonderful thing. The poor outcast Gentiles like you and me are not only accepted in the beloved, not only blessed as members of his body, but are so associated with him that it says we are raised together and seated together in heavenly places. So we put that down. 
And then looking at the epistles of the Colossians, to see if we could crystallize its teaching in some similar way, we lifted out the words, ye are complete in him. Well, there's no reason why you should limit yourself, friends. Have as many of these key words as you can discover, so they're all precious. But that, of course, is all we could do in a chart of this character. Well, now, look, look at the key words of Ephesians. One of the first things we strike in Ephesians, that it's the revelation of a mystery. It comes in chapter 1, it comes in chapter 3, it comes in the closing chapters. A mystery. And the mystery is defined as something that was hid in God and never revealed to anyone until the clock, as it were, struck and the time had come. Well, that is exactly the same as the teaching in the Epistle to the Colossians. I think perhaps for the moment we might just observe one or two parallels. Ephesians chapter 3 are just a few words from this to compare with the, the passage in Colossians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 3 For this cause I call the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you Lord how that by revelation he made known unto thee the mystery. There's a claim that as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles, he had received a dispensation and by revelation made known the mystery. Will you look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 34? Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh, for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill or complete the word of God, even the mystery, which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. There, those two passages are marked in together. They're not a, a mere repetition, because there's some very interesting uh, differences that only make the truth more clear when we get the comparison. So there we've got that word mystery. Well then we have one word which is very specially associated with the epistle to the Ephesians and that is heavenly places or heavenlies. It occurs five times in this epistle and that peculiar expression occurs nowhere else in the whole range of the New Testament. In heavenly places. That we must consider when we're looking at the epistle itself. And then we have a very strong emphasis on the fact of fullness. But you would observe this. Look at the word fullness in Ephesians 2. Now in Ephesians 1. It says in verse 22, we have put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. But the stress there is the body. The church is the fullness of him. And again you will notice in chapter 3, the climax of the prayer in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that he might be filled up to, not merely with, up to all the fullness of God. It's still the church that this word is used to define the fullness. And in chapter 4, verse 13, 
till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the distinctive emphasis in Ephesians when it uses the word fullness is that it can be used of the church to which you and I belong. But when we come to Colossians the stress is put on the other side. So how good it is to have the two and have this perfect balance. Chapter 1, 19. I think we ought to read verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. There's no reference there to the church, but it's him. Or again in chapter 2. Verse 8 and 9. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So the word fullness is apparently used by Paul in Ephesians, particularly to characterize the church, the body, and in Colossians to characterize Christ the head. And you don't get the truth if you emphasize the one to get the other, whichever way it is. Well, then you get those two which we've already mentioned. Christ is spoken of in Ephesians particularly as the head, and the church as the body. In other epistles, at other periods, he's given other titles. It's natural that we should discover in Peter's epistle that he's called the shepherd, a bishop of their souls. The shepherd. But he's never called the shepherd of the church of the one body. He's called the head. And this body is made up of members. But each member, as we should see by looking at chapter 3 of Ephesians, and I'll have to leave it without retranslation till we come to it. In uh, chapter 3, when he says, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. In that verse 6, the word together with, soon, comes three times. And it's one of the biggest puzzles that translators have to know how to say this word three times over. We say fellow heirs, all right. But what's a fellow body? To open it up, they put the word members in, but the Paul didn't put the word members in. He simply said, Susoma. Uh, whatever the word Su means, body. And then, not merely partakers, but fellow partakers. One of the attempts to get it within the scope of our English language is to use the word joint three times, like this. <coughs> that the Gentiles should be joined there. And a joint body. <coughs> and joint partakers. Well, that's all right. But then you come and say, what's a joint body? So when we do get to that verse, we should have to give it a good deal of patient consideration to see if we can, by the mercy of God, just consider what this threefold equality really means. But for the moment, you see, it's very emphatic that the church here is the body and Christ is the head and they are members one another. Let's get the parallel to this in Colossians just by way of 
completing. Chapter 2, verse 19. He's rebuking them here to negative, and not holding the head, from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered, and knit together, increases with the increase of God. This emphasis upon the, the members, and their relationship one to another, and then their relationship as a whole to Christ the head. Well then the other expression, which is characteristic of Ephesians and Colossians, is that the church is associated not with angels. The only reference to angels is to set them aside, as you've got Colossians 2 open in front of you possibly. It says, <coughs> Let no man beguile you of your reward, in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels. That's the only reference to angels that you'll find in these epistles that belong to our calling. <coughs> if you're dealing with Old Testament, or dealing with the Gospels, or dealing with the Acts of the Apostles, or with the early epistles, or with the book of the Revelation, you'll find angels everywhere. Because angels are particularly associated with the people of Israel. But they're absent from these epistles. We have no angels round our beds, even though we were taught perhaps as children to reckon we got them. We are so completely in the control and under the benediction of Christ our head that we need no other mediator, no other guardian. We've not lost anything. We've gained them all. But we are associated in the heavens not with the messengers of God, but that's what angels are. Mighty as they may be, are they not ministering spirits? But we're associated with princes, with authorities, with thrones and dominions. And those two words, principalities and powers, are referred to in both epistles. As you remember, Ephesians 1, the power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated of his own right hand, high above all principality of power and might and dominion. And then we have another aspect of it, which I think we must include to get a balance. Colossians, chapter 2, verse 10. Colossians 2, verse 10. And ye are completed him, which is the head of all principality and power. So he's associating the church there with the principalities and powers as though Christ is the head of both. And then we look a little bit further down the same chapter. Verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So in the very self-same chapter, some principalities and powers are united with the church and recognize Christ as their head and some principalities and powers by the very cross of Christ have been spoiled, stripped off and put aside. So we've got to watch our step there. But for the moment you see, all that I've attempted to do is to prove what I suggested that it's most evident that Ephesians and Colossians are a pair. They balance one another. Well now, if you take away Ephesians and Colossians, you've got Philippians and the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus. There's nothing else for it, is there? But you may say to me, why have you grouped 
1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy together. Well, I've done it for this reason. So, will you come to me to, to Philippians, chapter 1? Philippians chapter 1 commences like this. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi. Now, so far, that's very similar to the address to the Ephesians or to the Colossians, to the saints which are at Ephesus or at Colossae. But, he doesn't stop there when he's writing to the Philippians. He says, we, the bishops and deacons, now, why has he put bishops and deacons here? Why didn't he put them in Ephesus? We know that they had them because you read in Acts 20 about the elders, which is the very word which is a parallel, a synonym for the word bishop. But you see, when we're starting to consider the teaching of Philippians, we're on the ground of service. We're not on the ground of accepting in the beloved. In Ephesians, we are told, it's not of works, not of works, lest any man should boast. But Philippians says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we've, we've changed the ground. It's not now our standing in Christ. It's what we are doing with it. It's our state. And so, we, it's all in harmony with the new point of view that he not only addresses the church, but he addresses the bishops and the deacons. Well, now when we come to the First Timothy and Titus, we find there's a great stress put upon bishops and deacons. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a true saying, and by the way, these three epistles are linked together by a peculiarity of language. It is a faithful saying, is in 1 Timothy, in Titus, and in 2 Timothy. These little things link them together. Now he says, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Now what sort of man must the bishop be? Well, he should have a good education. He should be able to speak plainly. He should be acquainted with the language of scripture. If he can get a, a university degree, so much the better, as long as he doesn't get a swelled head as well. But never mentions a word about that here. That's taken for granted. I wish I had a better education than I ever had. Don't think I'm belittling it. I've spent most of my life trying to catch up with it. But this is what God says. A bishop then must be blameless. He's dealing with character. Blameless. Don't you remember that when they began to separate certain men, and among them was Stephen, Look out, men, a good report full of the Holy Ghost. Now, you would have think they put the Holy Ghost first, wouldn't you? But he didn't. Not the Holy Ghost, though. Good report full of the Holy Ghost. The two go together and the word good report coming first. So your character is an essential part of your equipment. A bishop then must be blameless. That tells you about his wife. Well, she's got something to do with it, too. The husband of one wife. Now, why does it say that? Well, there were any amount of Christians at the beginning of the church who, because they had been idolaters and pagans just before, they married two wives. Or more. Well, you see, it would never have done, would it, to have said, the moment a man becomes a Christian, he can say to one of his wives, well, good afternoon. But it never do, would it? 
So they had to tolerate that. But he said, you see, it would never do for a bishop to be in that perplexity, so that's the limitation. He's to be vigilant, sober, of good behaviour, given to hospitality, because the church began in the house, and I'm afraid it, I'm not afraid, but I rather think it's going to end in the house too, friend. All the tendency that we see about us is that the huge concerns may go on and fill their sacred buildings, but whether they will be the church is a matter of opinion. And many a time, when there's any turning out of the church to take place, those who are standing outside realise it's the best one to get turned out. So, given to hospitality, you must have a home to which you could invite these little groups here and there that the faith fail not. And then, act to teach. You might say, well, that goes without saying. Yes, but I think sometimes it's well to be to have it written, because you'll get some people whose one great idea is they've been chosen by God to be teachers. And the common comment about them is they can't teach for toffee. Well, that may be bad enough if they're teaching ordinary subjects upon which people have got to get their ordinary qualifications for ordinary life. But we're not dealing with ordinary subjects. We're dealing with the most sacred truth and a, a solemn trust. And I cannot believe that God would ever call a person to be a teacher and then forget to give him the aptitude to teach. So here it is. But we haven't finished it. Not given to wine. No striker. I don't think that has to do with like dot strikes and those sort of things because we belong to a union uh, which is a very different character altogether. Not greedy or filthy lucre. But patient. Not a brawler. Not covetous. A one that ruleth well his own house might have a rule out a good many, wouldn't it? Because occasionally the children of the vicar or the pastor are just the ones that everybody says, oh, they're an outrageous lot. I don't know why. Having his children in subjection with all gravity, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And after he's spoken about the bishop, he then speaks about the deacon. As you'll discover, in the next few verses. Verse 13, For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree, and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Well now, if you compare that with the epistle written to Titus, you'll find it goes over the ground, not so fully, but in some measure, very much the same. Chapter 1. Verse 5, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any man be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of right or unruly, for the bishop must be blameless. And there he is off again on the self-same thing. Well now then, I couldn't help myself. I said, here's one epistle that stresses the bishop and deacon. And here are these epistles that elaborate it. So I put them together. Well now, what about Philippians itself and Second Timothy? Do they constitute the pair? If so, then we've got the whole of this group under our eye and we realise the pattern. Well, let me remind you. In Philippians 1, 
We read, verse 10, that you may approve things that are excellent. In the margin, it says you could translate it, that you may try the things that differ. There's no great difference between the two, because if any person's got any sense, and he discovers one thing's different from another, he will, or should, approve that which is more excellent. Comes from the same thing. But I'm maintaining the marginal reading because it, it's more in line with the balancing statement. We don't read about trying things that differ in 2 Timothy, but you know what we do get, don't you? You get to rightly divide the word of truth. Well, if that's not trying things that differ, what is it? You divide the word of truth in order to see the differences and act accordingly. So, try the things that differ, rightly divide the word of truth. And then we come back again. It says in Philippians that there was tried. Uh, say one, one, Philippians 1.27 Only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in chapter 3, we are pressing to all the mark and uh, striving according to the teaching. When we get to the epistle, second epistle to Timothy, he uses the same words. He says, um, in the second chapter, if a man also strive for the masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. So we've got now another link. And then in Philippians, he says, I press toward the mark. I'm running with a goal in front of me. In Second Timothy, he said, I'm not running now. Why? Because I've touched the tape. I have finished my course. And the word course is the Greek word dromos, uh, which we get in such words today as the hippodrome. Hippo meaning a horse, and the drome meaning the course. It means a race course for running horses. He says, I finished my course. Now in Philippians, he says, I have the prize of the high calling in view. And in Second Timothy, he says, henceforth that is laid up for me a crown. There's no difference between a prize and a crown, except the prize is the all-covering word, and the crown is that which is the particular. I mean, a person may enter for sports, and then he goes up and the the squire or the squire's lady is there to give the prizes. And she gives him a purse of 50 pounds. And he looks at it and he says, well, I thought I was going to get a prize. You wouldn't think that, would you? See, the prize might be a fucking pig. Or it might be a purse of money. So we have a prize in front of us. What it is, we don't know. God's got the selection of that. But he revealed to Paul what he got. He got a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, would give him. And he says, not to me only, but unto all those who love his appearing. Well, then you see, that leaves us with two words. And these two words, by themselves, are sufficient to tie together Philippians and Second Timothy. And so far as I'm concerned, they finish the argument. Nowhere else in Paul's epistles, except in Philippians and in Second Timothy, do we read the word depart, or do we read this word offered? So shall we get them?
ทีนี้เอี้ยนวัดอีสุดที่ verse twenty two วิริปาดิบิตาเฟช this is the fruit of my labour yet what I shall choose I what not for I in a strait betwixt two having the desire to depart and to be with Christ which is far better so he had a desire to depart when I look at two Timothy chapter four Verse five. But watch thou in all things, in your afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. In, in the first epistle, he said, I would desire it, but I'm not going to have it. I'm going to remain here for your benefit. But now in the next epistle, he said, it's come. Well, now return to Philippians again, chapter two. Verse 17, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Now that particular word offered doesn't mean to offer like you offer a bull or a goat or a lamb. It means to pour out a drink offering. It's a peculiar word. And it doesn't occur anywhere else except in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I am now ready to be offered. So, in Philippians, he was ready for it, and he desired it, but it hadn't come. In 2 Timothy, he says, it has. It's arrived. Well, those two words link those two epistles together in such a way that you cannot tear them apart without damage. So, I feel that although we haven't touched upon the epistle to the Ephesians by itself, we are narrowing it down, aren't we? We've looked at all scripture, then we've seen the way in which there are a peculiar set of scriptures called epistles. Then we've seen some of them were written to the Jewish believers particularly. And then we found that some of them were written while Paul was a free man and the Jew had not yet been set aside. And then we find some were written when he became a prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles. And then we find that two of them, Ephesians and Colossians, are giving us basic truth of our calling. And two of them, Philippians and Second Timothy are asking us what we are doing with it, how far we are running, how far we are walking worthy, how far we are qualifying for the additional prize or the crown. Well now I think with that preparation, we can come to the epistle to the Ephesians and we can then sort that epistle out and distinguish between the three great chapters of doctrine with which it starts and the three great chapters of practice with which it concludes, and may the Lord grant that when we have gone through that epistle and seen the wonder of grace that has given us such a calling, that there be nothing for it, but we shall turn Ephesians 4 verse 1 into a prayer, O Lord, may I walk worthy of such a calling. For surely, if there's any incentive at all in grace, our echo should be Intense gratitude manifested by a walk that's in harmony with such a calling.